Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is Eric Steves. We've had Eric on before from Slack First Sales, but today he's going to be taking a very interesting angle on things. Eric's history, uh, you may recall, is fairly uh, colorful. He was a bouncer dealing with biker gangs and all sorts of fun stuff there. Then he became a firefighter. That's what we're going to be drawing on today because he did the FEMA ICS course, which is the Federal Emergency Management Agency and its incident control system. So it's um, really uh, incident command system, sorry. And it's really dealing with how you behave in a crisis. I thought that this could be a really interesting topic and uh, given that we're heading into recession and we're going to be facing a lot of crises coming up. So I thought we'd bring Eric back to discuss how firefighters deal with crises and see what parallels we can draw. So Eric, welcome back. Great to be here, Marcus. Thanks. Excellent. So give people 60 seconds on your history because you'll do it far better justice than I. Thanks. So I started very young in uh, cold calling for the Consumer Confidence Index, and it was the only job that I could hold for more than several months at a time because I was phenomenal at converting people on the phone. The difference was that where we were doing it, it's not how you want to be a seller at all, but I didn't know that at the time. But I was really good at getting people to do the damn survey, which led me to kind of always understand that I could do sales. I then did a plumbing apprenticeship out of college where I went the entire time through it and learned how to run a plumbing business. My mentor told me, don't be the guy they call to unclog the kitchen sink once. That's not how you get rich. You get rich in this or any business by being the only person their whole family would ever call to unclog their sink. Um, That eventually led me to... um, About four years in, I realized that to run a plumbing business successfully, you had to really be um, quite a taskmaster to a small community of people. And I just wasn't interested or up for it. I switched gears and said, I want to do public service. I wanted to be a firefighter because I figured long-term stability. So I went and I did the training. I did it over 11 months. And um, I failed the state exam a couple of times till I passed it because it is brutally hard. And then I applied for jobs and I took the test several times to work for actual county departments. But it's kind of like trying out for pro sports. Your scores just need to be high enough. And I was consistently in about the 85th percentile of the people that tested. So I never actually got a job firefighting. And I switched back to running businesses, which I ultimately learned how to grow and scale businesses through doing junk removal. Junk King and 1-800-GOT-JUNK. And I learned how to grow a business up over a million bucks in revenue in that space, which is hilarious because people think you're like playing in garbage all day. And then um, in the last probably five years, I came across Salesforce and sort of learned how to capture all the firepower of growing a business and selling well and all that fun stuff into the CRM. Now we call that RevOps on a good day. (laughs) Okay, so tell me about some of the uh, fundamental uh, rules when you're dealing with a crisis. Let's start with some foundational rules. Yep. So the first one that they always uh, instill is it is not your emergency. And though you have a moral and ethical obligation to do the very best job you can to provide the most help to do the least harm, it's not your job to just get killed for no reason. It's not a movie. And the most important thing you have to do is to be dispassionately detached from the outcome so that you can provide the most help. In a crisis, 
the best operators, they almost sound like an airline pilot doing a mundane flight. They're not panicking. They're not getting upset. So it's never become part of the emergency. Right. So they're never emotionally attached in any way, shape or form. What about overload? Because experience has taught me that when you're under pressure, the temptation is to revert back to what you learned first. So I'm trying to work out how do you minimize that workload on the brain so you don't suddenly shut down. And this is really specific to firefighting. They actually lean into that. They know that's going to happen. And so everything about how you're trained is we're going to break everything. They don't use the term first principles, but that's pretty much what's happening is everything is broken down into its most simplified and crystallized form that you could rely on over and over again so that you don't have to make rely on memory to know a correct outcome. You can more rely on experience through the lens of training is how I would describe it. Right. Okay. So if you are doing those basics, those fundamentals, it's certainly in sales, I fundamentally believe that you do the basics well consistently over time and mean it. And you're always working on the fundamentals. The finessing is great and very useful, but you never, ever stop practicing to maintain that level of mastery uh, of the basics. So what are the basics in terms of dealing with emergencies? So for incident command, the really specific thing we're doing is the assumption is that whoever showed up on the scene first, whoever saw the scene at its earliest iteration, that's that's trained in uh, emergency response, that person is actually going to be the most credible commander of the scene until someone who is very compellingly the subject matter expert or skilled in this type of incident shows up to relieve them of command. But it isn't just going to defer to a chain of command, though it is worth noting that chain of command is a bedrock of it. Like you have to have the assumption that orders are flowing in one direction and everyone's not just doing free jazz at a, at a mass casualty incident. <laughs> Why would anyone torture those people? They're in enough pain. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. So if we think about those fundamentals, then it sounds to me like a very similar kind of situation might exist where you have an inbound call. The person who takes that call isn't just trying to hand it off. They're trying to deal with the call and they are in charge whilst they try and work out and diagnose the problem and who to defer it to. Is that right? Yeah. And and, in an incident, it's the same thing. They have these units that they use that will be things like strike team, task force. They all have these cool action movie sounding names. But to be fair, people in that profession deserve to talk about what they do that way. But in that space, everything means a specific amount of units with a specific responsibility. And everybody has a mutual understanding of the intended outcome for the public and for the agency. Okay, so let me just stop you there. Does that mean that you are now really very clearly uh, talking about having common language, shared definitions of the meanings of those words and what a unit of action looks like so that there is zero ambiguity on the Passover? Yeah, exactly. So like most people in this space train for roughly a day on the core terminology of this, then another day in using it in hypothetical scenarios. And then on an annual basis, they'll retrain on these fundamentals because it would get a little confusing. Like I myself, before we did this call, I was like, 
oh God, I don't remember the difference between a strike team and a task force and all this other stuff. But the basic notion would be that it it's a way to leverage the units that you have available to solve a problem. It's almost like a martial art. Sorry, what was that? They they have different functions. So a strike team, the strike team does one thing, a task force does something. So they each have a job to be done. Right. And everything is aligned around the intended outcome, which sounds really obvious sitting this far away, but it's less obvious when you're looking at a big incident. Okay. So first feet on the ground, they take command. Mm -hmm. Their role then is to diagnose the situation and um, identify what possible uh, upcoming consequences may occur. Right. So just one example of that would be, you know, if they get to a house that's on fire and they have, let's say, six firefighters, which in the U.S. they would never have six at the first due. Most fire engines in the U.S. now run with two, like one person driving, one person getting out. But the commander is going to get out and do what's called a scene size up, which they just physically walk around the entire perimeter of the building that's on fire. And in the case of a two-person team, the other person is going to be pulling a hose from the engine, going to the door, getting ready to do what's called making entry. And that is coordinated such that by the time the size up, the walk of the perimeter is complete, the person at the door is ready to go in and act because, you know, we're dealing with something where the sooner you act, the better the outcome. So at that point, is command then being handed over to the person with the hose? No. The person with the hose is going to act as basically the eyes and ears of the commander as they go in to do what's called a primary search. In the RACI model, they are now responsible for taking that action. And Precisely. And the is accountable. Yep. Interesting point there is like, there's a shared understanding of what a primary and a secondary search is. And this is kind of nuanced and inside baseball. But what you're balancing is the need to find a bunch of unconscious victims that may or may not be there with the need to get the fire knocked down, with the need to not send too many people in if you don't need to. The main goal is you're trying to send as few people into a life-threatening environment as humanly possible to get the most positive impact. Got it. Okay. So this is all about balancing risk. It's about managing resource. And it's about making decisions in a very short space of time, recognizing that there are consequences and uh, having a playbook that helps you to mitigate the downside of those risks and maximize the upside. Yeah, well said. Got it. Okay. So in terms of the mindset, you talk about firefighters being a paramilitary type of organization. In our world, paramilitary normally means pictures of terrorists and things like that. But I, I get the meaning now. So what is it about the culture of these kind of paramilitary organizations that attract people like you to be part of them? Almost everyone you encounter in firefighting is very skeptical. And they're all very like kind of folksy, salt of the earth kind people that are like fun to spend time around. But they don't trust people outside of their circle the way they trust people in their circle. And what that really speaks to is that If a firefighter on a fire scene, for example, tells another firefighter, I'm going to do this, like you've confirmed that you're doing that, the other firefighter knows that either that person is going to succeed at that or die trying. And literally, the mentality is like, okay, 
They said they're going to go to this place with a hose to this door. If you go to check on radio and you don't hear that that's happened, you immediately take steps like the person is incapacitated because you're defaulting to that level of reliability, to that level of trust. And the biggest thing is that firefighting is a self-correcting art. So when things go wrong, they're leaned into and focused on. The feedback is really brutal, but so is the support. So it's like the thing you and I have talked about with high challenge, high support. I would really say that at its core, you're talking about the highest challenge, highest support relationship. You hear this a lot from the military. I interviewed the first Gurkha to join the SAS. And what was really interesting about uh, Tapa's uh, story is that he was somebody who really wanted to be part of this organization from childhood. Big aspirational uh, thing. But being part of the SAS was the next step up. And amount of time that he spends in these incredible life-threatening situations, but it's really built on trust and intimacy. And I'm very curious about how you guys develop that intimacy. Is it through the training? Is it through the right, the drill? Or is it through being thrown into dangerous situations where you have to depend on one another? I mean, what, what is it that drives that camaraderie? There's nothing like the bond you have with a person when you both learn that you're terrified of something together. Like, I think that we're wired that way, that like it goes back to the caveman days and a mastodon or something is chasing us. And we say, oh, wow, like that person, like we didn't get killed. So like I can I can count on them. The psychology starts there. And I think that the other part of it, too, is that there's something really special about discovering your limits and discovering your potential. And when you look next to you and, and there's a familiar face that spent a year discovering their limits and their potential together, that forms a bond. And when people have been through the rite of passage together, where it's understood that everyone has performed to that level under duress or whatever, there's a certain level of trust that's afforded, even if you're just meeting that person, because all other things being equal, you're much closer to them than you are to the general population. Okay. So as you were talking, I was starting to think about how people in survival mode club together and create tribes and create groups. Um, obviously, years, you know, a lot of time spent training in high-pressure situations uh, will create the conditions for a bonding to occur, <laughs> assuming you survive. So the next iteration of that is really taking action. And I'm very curious how you prevent yourself from taking action when you think you've got the answer. And how do you, fall, how, how do you make sure you don't fall foul of the lazy why in a situation like this? Because the unintended consequences of the wrong decision can be fatal. So I think the biggest answer to your question there is this thing called the critical incident stress debriefing or just a post-incident debriefing, which is just a cultural thing where when there's a major incident that meets certain criteria, there will at a minimum be a brief conversation with all of the key players. And the ritual of that conversation is that rank doesn't exist in that room. There are no recriminations or repercussions. You're there to hold yourselves to an outcome. And the understanding is like everyone here is part of the tribe. No one is saying that you are in any danger of not being part of the tribe. Like your career is not in danger here. 
but we're trying to protect the quality of the firefighting that we do and the life-saving and ultimately raise the quality of the mission by being brutally accountable to one another about, could I have done this better? Could we have done that better? And better may not even be the right frame so much as differently, just to gain that institutional awareness through a vulnerable exchange of feedback and you know support and criticism. So in that kind of situation where you are doing that uh, critical review, is there a structure to that? The structure is going to be that there's a report of the incident that the person in charge made. And the very first thing that happens is they're going to share the report with the room and see if there's any deviations from that narrative in terms of like, this is what we observed at this point in time. And it's all it's all very specific to time. And these things, a lot of these incidents where you're talking about like the ability to get better could have happened in a period of minutes on something that's like dozens of hours long. So they go to the report, which is kind of like the script for the incident. The assumption is, of course, that the report is done correctly. And in that discourse from the report, you're going to gain whatever insights you can about the best way to be safer in the future. The goal is to not make the same mistakes twice if possible. Okay. One of the things that I see many managers fall into the trap of doing especially under pressure, is taking on more and more. And that overload starts to create burnout, and then all sorts of negative repercussions occur. How do you make sure that you're not taking on too much if you're uh, running one of these incidents? Well, in addition to just the fundamentals of, okay, we're not going to take on more than seven moving parts. There's this very rigorous structure that's aligned towards outcome. The main thing is that people that have been in charge of very high stakes, very difficult decision-making incidents, they learn a kind of, I don't know, rabbinical wisdom about how to just leave things the hell alone for a minute. And for the rest of us, it might seem excruciating to wait that minute to make a decision. And it's not that they're being deliberative, they're observing. There might be one single piece of information that they will hang their decision on and they're willing to wait in a high stakes moment for that piece of information. And because everyone has the mutual trust and the understanding that we are here on a mission and our mission is to get better every day at that mission, that person can then let go of the the outcome from the sense of like taking personal ownership of the whether it goes well or not. The thing that is really hard and nuanced to explain here is that if you've been at enough of these, there will be ones that go wrong despite you making all the right decisions. Of course. And there will be ones where you absolutely failed to see some key detail, but the universe kind of gave you a wink and a nod and didn't make it cost you dearly. And your ability to understand that is your credibility with your people, all other things being equal. So again, if I understand you correctly, you put your ego aside, you report back what worked, what didn't work. You don't take credit for luck and you focus on every minute detail. So what you're doing is you're looking at the problem through the eyes of many people and you're doing that through over a time frame so that you're breaking it down moment by moment so you can see the syntax, you can see the emphasis, you can see the 
choreography. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Absolutely. And it also speaks to um, a love of the fundamentals. Like one of the big overlaps between high-performing sales teams and high-performing rescue teams that I've seen is like an amazing VP sales likes to prospect with their team still. Not from a sense that like they have better things they could be doing and they're going to waste their day doing that, but from a sense of like just all other things being equal, if a if a really great VP sales has like five minutes and their team's around, what else would they love doing more than like training in the fundamentals with them? And same thing like in emergency management, things like how you put a ladder up on a wall, how you put a hose away, how you get a tool ready for the shift, those really do determine whether you live or die in battle. And so when you're out there in the morning practicing throwing ladders, a great battalion chief will come and just throw ladders with you. And they're not there with any kind of artifice or agenda. They just say, as the chief, if anyone should know how to throw a ladder really, really well, it should be me. And what's throwing a ladder? Pulling it from the side of the truck, getting it to the building, and then getting it safely vertical in the least amount of time and least amount of steps possible. Okay. Right. Okay. So this then speaks to another interesting uh, question. In order to manage an incident or to manage a sales team, do you have to be a highly proficient operator or do you need to know how to get other people to be really good at operating? Much more important to be in the latter. Some of the best actual leadership in firefighting It's no secret that they've physically aged out of their prime in terms of being an operator. Now, that's not to say that they don't keep themselves in the type of shape that they can operate at the level needed to be effective, because that's absolutely true. But there are definitely people who their skill set is more suited towards the deploying of resources than the being an individual contributor. And firefighting especially is pretty beautifully suited to finding those people and putting them in charge. Like the thing that cracked me up is like the highest level, most decorated, most seen, the most shit out there guy that I dealt with in firefighting. He was maybe five foot four and he sounded like Piglet from Winnie the Pooh. (laughs) And he extraordinarily soft-spoken, extraordinarily gentle nature, always in this one exact very pleasant mood. You could not get him to deviate from that. And everyone to a person loved working with that person because there was no macho bullshit whatsoever. There was no like, I can do the most pull-ups. It was all just like, this is what works. This is what doesn't work. And everyone's going to get treated well when they work with this person, you know? Okay, so then that talks to me again of someone who's committed to the mission, the purpose, and understands that their responsibility is to be consistent. So again, servant leadership comes to mind here because the best servant leaders that I've ever come across are constantly managing by walking around. They are deeply involved. They know their people there's a regular cadence of uh, contact. They understand what it takes to get the best out of those people. And they're working towards helping them achieve their personal goals and outcomes. 
So I'm curious about the leadership side of this rather than the command side. Yeah, I mean, on the leadership side, what I have observed anyway is that the ones that make it a career choice that they say, I'm going to be spending decades leading these people, they tend to make their day-to-day life and activity most resemble an entry-level firefighter. So like when you're brand new at firefighting, everything is your job. But at the same time, the worst thing you could do is to run like a chicken with your head cut off and start doing something stupid. So it's this fine balance of bias towards action with an awareness of the best practices. You have to have both at once. And these leaders show this leadership by simply being operationally amongst their people in a way that they have to show that they're defaulting to it. There's a really easy way that like some in firefighting, the structure would be called a battalion chief. That's a person who's in charge of multiple stations in a city. Some of those guys don't, they don't get seen on shift by their people. And very quickly, things are going to go badly for them, even if those are people that are otherwise very qualified. The leadership comes in is, again, that same guy I was talking about who sounded like Piglet, he would go around like if he's on a particular week, all the stations in his territory, he's going to have at least one meal with every of those stations with their crew where he's just there with them and they're happy to see him. It's not like everyone straightens up because the boss is there. They're genuinely happy to see them. And that's the biggest difference I think you would see between like the hyper corporate world and a paramilitary structure in terms of leadership is that someone at Salesforce might really look up to Mark Benioff and they might be excited like as a fan that Mark Benioff is there. And I'm sure that within certain orbits closer to his leadership, They can have this experience that I'm describing where like they enjoy his presence. Mm -hmm. But in something where you're just doing like a simpler structure, like you're not going to have that many layers of complexity in like emergency response. The reality is still that leadership is mostly about presence in this space because it's such a high performing environment that has such a high barrier to entry in terms of physicality and training and all of this other stuff really what determines leadership is how present they are. And for sure, it's about how present the people they're leading perceive them to be. If someone knows you're there for them, then they don't wonder if you're there for them. Okay. So again, I think one of the really interesting elements of this conversation is that you're going to do focus on the fundamentals. I'd like to just explore very briefly the whole concept of multitasking in this context. There's a a cycle of action rather than lots of different jobs. But what happens if you get distracted in this kind of circumstance, I imagine is probably not a good outcome. Sure. So the distraction is going to be your number one enemy in the chaos of an incident. And that's why it defaults to how many times have you practiced and and how solid is your plan? So in the ICS framework, the thing that I really like is that command sits over top of everything as it should. So if you were thinking about like danger of multitasking, from the outside looking in, you would say, well, command has to hear about everything. So like, wouldn't their, you know, their day-to-day be so chaotic? Like, for example, if we talk about like a hurricane or an earthquake or a big like a forest fire. But the reality is that the command part of it when done right is actually very quiet. 
And the incident commander is only interacting with maybe four or five people when it comes to like, what do we do? What's going on? The entirety of the rest of it is trusting the resources to interact the way they were built to interlock. So like going command, operations, planning, uh, finance, which the acronym they use all the time is CFLOP, command, finance, logistics, operations, planning. And people that are very specialized in all of those parts and then timing the cadence of their work together so that it's additive rather than subtractive. So like at, at its core, you know, any incident is always just going to have command and operations at the beginning. Command is whoever's doing that size up operations is whoever's going in. Well, just as soon as the incident has become more complex, either there's a greater need for search it's a bigger fire, so they need more water. You're going to need logistics in there to get them more water, to get them more people, to get them more tools. Once you've gotten to the point that all of those people are absolutely doing something, command now takes on the planning portion of it because they're talking about when do we hit the limits of the resources that we have and what's our time differential in getting those mission critical resources by the end. And then at the very end of an incident, it, it really does have the bureaucratic state over it. Because if you're going to be somewhere for more than a week with more than a dozen people, it's no different than a trip with your family. Like there's an administrative and a finance component to that. Okay. So in effect, what we're talking about here is a framework that informs le uh, leadership on how to manage the command structure and delegate responsibility based on the information being fed up from the ground, and then to make decisions using that macro view of the situation that the individual um, location commanders won't have that bigger picture. And so what you have to then do is coordinate to make sure that the minimum number of people are sent in to tackle the emergency whilst also maximizing the amount of life that they save and minimizing the risk to either victims or firefighters. And then to come back at the end, review what worked and what didn't work with no holds barred and no status and no ego so that you can learn and improve iteratively. Yeah. And, and so, and the real thing is, the kind of cultural ethos for these people is called pride and ownership, which actually goes back to a book that Ben Franklin wrote about it. Because in terms of the concept of a fire department, the way Americans see it, Franklin kind of made that framework. Like he's the one who spelled it all out. Before his system, they had these things called fire brands, which were basically like a tile that you hung on the outside of a building. And it was sort of like buying car insurance. So like you would right. choose one. And what it looked like at the beginning was these people would show up drunk and they would get in a fist fight with the other one because they said, no, we're getting paid for this. And your house would burn down while these people fought in your front yard. Mm -hmm. So like that could kind of be thought of as like the antithesis of the outcome that you're going for in like a truly well-balanced incident command system where these people could be responding to like the way that it gets taught is always you have a dumpster that's on fire, like a single fire engine rides up to a dumpster that all of the same intricate, elegant logic that would apply to Hurricane Katrina, which was an 11 year total response, 
you can see the exact same methodology in how a fire department would respond to one single dumpster fire. That's really elegant to have a system that can scale to that level. So that involved a lot of friction and intersectional moments with uh, people from different experiences uh, over many, many years. So I'm really curious about the learning culture of these kind of environments. Talk to me about people's attitudes towards learning and the way learning is uh, managed within them. Well, one of the things I love about firefighting is that though there's most definitely a canon of best practices and it's everyone's job to know that canon down to like the decimal letter of that particular uh, iteration. There's also an openness, especially in training or in incidents where if you make a breakthrough discovery about how to reinvent a process, if you can prove your case in the logic of operations and how it works, they will rapidly adopt changes to the entire canon. The best example I can give you is that for a very long time, people said the safest way to get out of like from the second floor or higher in a burning building, like, okay, the scenario is that things have gotten bad. What's really going on is that the people inside the building have seconds, not minutes to get out or they're going to die. So how do you engage with that? And that's, you know, bailing out is kind of what you would call it. Originally, they said, okay, go out the window feet first, get your feet on the ladder and climb down. That's what people did. Well, there was a fire, I think it was in Ohio, but it was either Pennsylvania or Ohio. See where this um, is going. <laughs> um, the guy just dove out the window and grabbed the ladder. Yeah. And he did it. Like when they asked him about it, he said, well, I was on fire. You know, because he was. He was physically on fire. And that's just what he happened to do. But they, the cool thing was that there was a news crew there filming. And they watched what this guy did. And almost everyone that had been in a lot of these fires noticed that that was actually the smartest thing he could have possibly done and the safest for that matter because of where your gear is on your body and a bunch of other things. Very quickly, and I mean within weeks, almost every fire department ran versions of that drill and did their own internal vetting where they trained it against what they were doing. And in firefighting, you want to have a basic like a science of how you do things. And it'll typically be like, can we get this faster in time? And that's what they're looking for. And when it came to this, it offered a time incentive that was just too good to pass up. And I was there for this. We all got the good news that we would be diving out of windows from now on just to make sure we knew how to. Now, ironically, we still generally chose to go feet first out the window when it wasn't the end of the world and we weren't completely on fire because it's terrifying diving out of a window, you know? <laughs> um, and I don't no necessarily fun. recommend it. <laughs> no, I, I imagine I'd take the slow route no matter what. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You want your safety safe. Yeah, well, you'd need to have training to do that. Otherwise, your natural instinct wouldn't be to do it, I guess. Yeah, and it's another big one there. And like, it's hard to talk about, but it's true is that like, if for some reason you run out of air, you are much safer having no air coming in and the face piece on than you are removing the face piece. But as soon as your adrenaline starts dumping, we have a natural instinct to not want anything on our face. And this starts to go up the more we're panicking. 
So firefighters have to train a lot about don't rip this mask off your face when you're panicking. If you're panicking, that's the most important time to leave the damn thing on there. And you'd be better off if you passed out with that on your face than all other things being equal. So there is a lot of that kind of uh, knowledge that they've gotten from their experience. Interesting. Okay. And in terms of the command structure, uh, you've got command, you've got operations, you've got logistics. How do you communicate in a way that allows you to convey the massive information that's required without overburdening people with the detail? So they codify it. Like a great example would be in the scenario where you pull up and the one person is at the door and the one person is outside, the person that's going to what they call break the plane, which basically just means enter the dangerous environment with intention, that person isn't going to do it until they've said the following. They're going to say who they are. They're going to say who is going with them, like a mathematical count. So it's going to be like so-and-so, firefighter one, par one, which just means like your count of people. So like if it's just you by yourself, firefighter one, par one, making entry. Person listening to the radio knows exactly what that means. You're also going to tell them where, like on a building relative to the street, you're going to have the A, B, C, or D side, like rotating clockwise. So you're just making it really clear to them, like, okay, here's where we're going in. Here's who's going in so that there's an awareness. And the entire thing is recorded now, which is helpful, just like kind of like conversation intelligence. So the entirety of the radio traffic is that the better the incident is run, the less need there actually is for, for radio chatter. And like your radio chatter needs to be really short, really calm and really clear. So like just saying what's going on in the, in the few terms as possible. Okay. And when things go wrong, how does one make sure that people step forward and tell the truth willingly rather than trying to hide and make excuses? Because obviously in our world, there's quite a lot of excuse making. Yeah, there's a, there's a clear culture of accountability that says that you're, you're just raised in this profession to have these conversations where you take ownership of what could have gone differently or what couldn't. And in that cultural support of that ownership, there's the understanding that if you were to be that person who flubbed the facts for their own benefit, you know, traitor's not a strong enough word. The idea is that like, if we're counting on you to participate in this in good faith, like the kind of social covenant of that is we can forgive you failing at your job. We can forgive you panicking and running if that's what happened. If you say that's what happened. If we all look at you and we know that's what happened and you tell us something else, that's it. One of those. Your trust is broken. You're ruined. Like people know, okay, I can't count on this person. They're not reliable. Ah, okay. So very interesting because... Certainly in the work that you and I have been doing around ecosystems, that trust is really paramount. So in terms of the shared values, what are the shared values that uh, these paramilitary organizations typically will have? Maybe let's just focus on the firefighting side. Uh, mm -hmm. 
the biggest shared value that I could share with is um, integrity. Like that's probably the biggest one of them is they want to know that you're going to hold yourself to not just what's easy, but what's right. And that what's right doesn't care about what's easy for you. And like a good example I could give you is a common thing they tell you about in training is you go to transport an elderly patient because in the US, firefighters are EMTs as well. So the, the frame is, you go to pick up an elderly patient, they're unconscious, you know you're going to transport them to the hospital. You notice the other firefighter with you taking a bottle of pills from their nightstand and putting it in their pocket. What do you do? A lot of people answered that question saying, well, I would tell the commanding officer or whatever, you know, the, the implication was that this person was somehow like stealing drugs from old people to do them, right? And in this, in this particular scenario, what you come to find out is that the paramedic you're with knows that this medication is prescribed more than once a day to this patient, that it affects their baseline vitals, and that the pharmacy at the hospital, just the logistical delay of having the pharmacy at the hospital re-prescribing could potentially jeopardize this patient's well-being. So the decision was made to take the actual medication from the patient's home with them to the hospital, riding right there on the gurney to physically hand to the to ER doctor and say, hey, here you go. This is, this is their BP meds. This is their whatever to keep that continuity of care. But the entire purpose is that you are supposed to entrust default to the scene and the process. And I'm very hesitant to blindly trust anyone in any circumstance. But you do see in this culture how that value of being able to implicitly trust the person that you're with, it isn't just about your life. It's about your own credibility and your own value and trustworthiness in the community. It's really interesting that you talk about implicit trust. Very interesting. So Eric, tell me this. In terms of the culture that leadership creates so that this type of incident can be managed well. What are the characteristics and the qualities of the people right at the top? And I know you've mentioned a couple of them that you, you welcome their visit, but how do they behave in times of emergency themselves? They gain an ability, and I'm going to be very careful how I describe this because it could be really toxic what I'm describing, but they gain an ability to not get carried away by the magnitude of what's unfolding and what they're responsible for. And I don't really know what you would even call this ability. And keep it in perspective. Yeah, but it's, it's something more nuanced than that. It's that they remain effective in the face of really bad inputs. So like, I, you know that old saying, like anyone can be a good captain in a calm sea or however it is you say that. The thing that I'm trying to explain is that like, a really phenomenal incident commander can have two horrifyingly bad choices in front of them and genuinely deliberate them on, uh, on their merits and, and, and have an understanding of, well, you have two terrible decisions here. We've already established that you're going to have to choose a terrible outcome. What's the least terrible outcome you can conjure from these two terrible outcomes? And I know that sounds really bleak and dark, but I mean, that is the reality that these people face. Like I had someone in that space that I worked with who they went to a call that was a semi truck that was on fire and they had to physically tell the person in the semi truck, 
we're not going to save you. They had to give this person the news like, you're going to die right now. I'm so sorry. We can't help you. The even crazier thing was this turned out to be that man's cousin that he grew up with. He didn't know it at the time. He found that out right afterwards. That's the kind of stuff that you're actually exposed to in that world is that it's your own community that you're providing this service to. It's where you grew up. It's where you live. Not all the time, but more often than you would think. So there's a very real chance that what you're doing will come home to your very own personal life when it's over. And the leaders who are able to still show up every day for decades, being vulnerable to that, it's a type of strength and dignity that, that is just, um, I'll always admire, you know? Wow. Well, I think that's probably a high point to finish on. Eric, thank you. Thank you, Marcus. Really interesting. What would you suggest people read up on or listen to around the topics that we've talked about? You don't even need to read the whole thing, but just educate yourself about pride and ownership from Ben Franklin. It's just a really interesting philosophy. It's especially relevant now in the US where we debate the merits of like privatizing a service for profit or not. Mm -hmm. And it really kind of cuts to the core of adding value versus making a profit and how they don't always align. And I say that as a really diehard entrepreneur and capitalist, but you kind of learn the, the difference in the use cases there. And the other thing I would really encourage people to do is um, the TV show Rescue Me. It's a TV show and it's fantastical, but Dennis Leary was, uh, he grew up in a family of firefighters yeah. and that TV show is a love letter to everything great and everything screwed up about firefighters. So if you're ever really wanting to see like what the human tolls of doing that kind of work look like, that show does an amazing job of, of showing you how that stuff affects you over time. Very interesting. Okay, so um, t tell everyone what you do for a living most of the time, because um, we haven't really covered that today. So... I advise companies on their RevOps and their go-to-market from a strategic level with a technical emphasis on Salesforce and the CRM. So basically aligning your processes to what your customers want and making sure that your tech stack is empowering that rather than being in the way of it. That's the best way I could describe it. And the playground I do that in most is Salesforce. Okay. And how can people get hold of you? Easiest way is to grab me on LinkedIn, which is just Eric Steves on LinkedIn. And you can also find my company that I run with my partner, Rebecca, which is Project Kickass, pkasolves.com. And uh, we'd be happy to take care of you any of those places. Excellent. Eric Steves, thank you. Thank you so much. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. You can get a hold of me, Marcus at laughs-laughs.com. And... If you're the founder of a $20 million plus tech scale up and you're looking at down the barrel of a gun because your investors have changed the rules and now instead of revenue at any cost, you now have to make a profit and you're in a crowded competitive market, give me a call. There's a load of stuff that I've been doing uh, around partnering, ecosystems, innovation that will help you to work your way out of it. I'm happy to share what I know and if it results in us ever working together, that would be lovely. 
But if it doesn't, as long as I could have helped, that would be great. So get in touch. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.